So if you see me wearing this shirt, um, it's because I have to. So first loser fantasy football. So it's a little bit of embarrassment to me, and so I'm not in the greatest mood right now to preach. And so, in fact, I kind of feel like this right now. If you, if you, you know those like monikers you see on the side of the road, like churches that have like say stuff about their services. You got to throw this one up. It says, uh, "What is hell like? Come hear our preacher." And so that's. Um, um, that's us today. It's actually, it's also relevant to today because uh, we are actually continuing our series, Controversial Jesus. Last week, we talked about Jesus and controversy, the fact that if you follow Jesus, you will experience tension and frustration and controversy in your life in this culture. And so today, we're talking about another controversial topic, and that is hell. Today, I'm going to preach, and we're going to talk about what Jesus has to say about hell. Now, what's interesting is when I say we're going to talk about hell, here's what I know. Many of us, many of you may be uncomfortable with that topic or with me saying that. And I would venture to guess that it might not necessarily be because you want to avoid the topic of hell, but, but, but rather it might be because of your experience with it growing up. Maybe a church you grew up at or a camp that you went to or a counselor or that Aunt Bethel that just like always loved to talk about hell, it seemed like, right? And so you have the, the pastor or the counselor or the, the family member, and it's like they, they loved talking about hell. It's like they literally wanted to scare the hell out of you. So they, they'd bring it up all the time. And you know, in the South, too, people get really excited about it. They could even split it up into two syllables, like hail. Right? Like, like you're going to go to hail, right? Hail is hot, eternity is long, right? They'll talk about hell so much it's like they were born there and like they were raised there. And then they ask you questions like, you want to go to heaven when you die, don't you? And you're like, well, not if you're going to be there, right? And so it's like, so this is like the thing that might comes to your mind. Now, today, um, this is not going to be a fire and brimstone sermon. That's not today. But I am going to give you the truth. That's my commitment, to give you the truth. And my assumption, my assumption is that you would not want to go to a church that edited out Jesus, or as we talked about last week, made Jesus into a caricature to sound like he was someone he was not, just to get more people to come to church and for us to feel better about ourselves. I'm guessing that's not why what you want or else you wouldn't be here. And so for us this morning, whether we agree with Jesus or not, you probably just at least want to know what he says about it. What does Jesus actually say about it? That's what we're going to spend a few minutes looking at. Now, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, there are 33 times that we have written down where Jesus is recorded as talking about hell. 33 different instances. In fact, he talks about hell more than he even talks about heaven. And I would even venture to say, generally speaking, if a couple of decades ago, it seemed like hell was all, was like the main thing, like pastors and churches, that's all they wanted to talk about. It kind of seems now that maybe the, the pendulum has swung all the way to the other side to where hell is actually hardly ever talked about. Like it's not something we ever want to mention. And of course, given how our current culture in the West is set up, if I was Satan, I think I would want to do one of two things. I would either want to convince people that hell does not exist or if it did exist, that no one was actually going to go there. It does not exist, or if it does, it would not actually have to, no one actually goes there. And if, and if we were to buy into that lie, uh, we would, uh, two things would be true from that. One is that it would give people who don't know Jesus no urgency to know and to follow him. No urgency. Why, why would you if you're going to go to the good place no matter what you do? And for Christians, people who do know, love, and follow Jesus, it would give us no urgency to share our faith with our lost friends. No urgency. 
right? Because it doesn't exist or no one's actually ever going to go there. And so for the Christian, it takes away any sense of urgency of that God loves them and encouraging us to live a missional life to those around us. And so I want to look at what Jesus says about hell. And I would say this, uh, some of the things that we're going to see this morning might be surprising to you. I think sometimes we assume things are in the scripture that are not, or we were told things. And so if at any point I say something, you're like, hmm, I'm not sure if I agree or what I feel about that. Just track with me till the end. Okay, that's all I ask. Just track with me till the end. So uh, Jesus in Matthew 25, one of the times he talks about hell, it'll be on the screen. He says it this way. When the son of man, his son of man is his uh, most used designation for himself. So when Jesus comes in his glory, talking about when Jesus returns a second time to inaugurate the kingdom of God, all the nations, or comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. Just as a shepherd separates uh, uh, the sheep from the goats. He will put his sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now understand this, God made heaven and his kingdom. God made heaven and his kingdom for you. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is why God created it, so that we could participate with him. In fact, if you are a human being, which all of you are, right, you were created, this is what you were created for, a intimate relationship in the kingdom of God with your creator, a life-giving, joy-filled relationship with him. You were created in the image of God. It says right in the beginning, Genesis chapter one, you were created in the image of God for the presence of God. And then, of course, we, however, have messed up, even in our sin and our shame, our going our own way. God does not abandon us. And yet, rather, in the midst of our sin, he has made a way for you to still experience his kingdom through Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. That is what you, as a human being, were created for. So then the question becomes, well, then what was hell created for? Well, Jesus says this a few verses later, chapter, uh, chapter 25, verse 41 in Matthew says, then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, this is where you might have, you see what he says here? Who was hell created for? It was actually created for Satan and his demons who rebelled against God. Now, did you know this? That hell actually wasn't created for you? It wasn't created for Aunt Bethel. It wasn't created for your friend. Like it, it wasn't created for you. It was created originally for divine beings who rejected God. That's why it was created. Therefore, it would be unbiblical to say that God wants people to go to hell because he didn't make it for people. It's not who he made it for. Or that he is cruel and mean because he just wants to punish people for all of eternity. Again, that is not the goal of hell. It's not why it was originally created. And so, in fact, maybe I'll put it this way, and I'll read some verses to support it. In real simple terms, here's one of the things we need to understand about hell, okay? Hell is for those who don't want to be with God, not for people God doesn't want to be with. It was originally created for Satan and his demons, for those who don't, didn't want to be with God. It was not created for people that God does not want to be with. So we need to, this is foundational for us to understanding what what the scriptures, what Jesus says about hell. It was created for those who don't want to be with God. It's not a place that God says, I don't want you to be here, so you need to go there because he somehow doesn't like you or a certain person. 
In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3, it says this, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. His desire is that nobody would perish, and instead every single image bearer that he has created would come to trust, love, and know him and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. This is what God wants. It's what God actually wants. And so you may think, okay, that sounds good. So Dylan, um, if God doesn't want anyone to go to hell, then why does he send people there? God does not want anyone to go to hell. Then why would God send people there, right? He doesn't have to, right? Like he's God, he's all powerful, he can do whatever he wants. And so why would he send people there if he didn't create it for them and he doesn't want them to go there, right? Can't, can't God just save everyone? So why is this even a thing that we have to talk about? It's a great question. So in Isaiah chapter 59, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, he, he says this, and of course this is repeated in the New Testament as well. Isaiah says this, indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save. So it's not that he can't save everyone, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. In other words, it's not that he, that he doesn't listen to people who repent, but rather verse two, but your iniquities are separating you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. So, so the problem we see in scriptures is not that God rejects us even in the midst of our sin or that he hates us or that he's angry with us. The, the problem is that our iniquities, our sin, our going our own way have separated us from God. Maybe you could think of it this way. That sin separates. Sin separates. That is what Isaiah is saying here, that God has created us for a certain type of a relationship with him, and it is our sin that has changed the dynamic of the relationship. It's us. It's our sin. Our sin separates, which means, here's what this means when it comes to this idea of hell, that hell exists because God is holy. Here's why hell exists. Hell exists because God is holy. It is not because he enjoys punishment. It is not even to teach people a lesson. Like, that's not why it was created. Hell exists because God is holy. Now, now holy means to be a set apart. It means to be sacred, righteous. It means to, be, to mean different, that, that Jesus is set, God is set apart. He's different than us. That because God is perfect, that because he is without blemish, he's full of love and truth, that things that are not like him cannot be or enter into his presence. Things unlike God cannot be around God because him and his name will not be tarnished by anything. Will not be uh, subdued or tarnished or, or um, lessened by anything. It's not, it's not a perfect analogy, but maybe you can kind of think of it like this. Like, imagine, unless it was at a beach, this is the only exception, but like imagine going to a wedding in shorts and flip-flops right? Or maybe going to a courtroom in shorts and flip-flops or a funeral, right? If you were to do that, you would not be properly honoring either the person or the occasion. You would not be honoring the person or the occasion if you dressed so casually at such a significant event, right? And so, um, in fact, this is why, like, when you read scripture in the Old Testament and even sometimes in the New Testament, when God's presence or an angel appears, like, immediately the person, like, falls to the ground and, like, don't kill me, it's always like as a side note, someone's like, if someone says like, yeah, I had this dream or I had this vision about God and they talk about it in like loving, glowing terms. I'm like, that ain't him. Because everything I read, I'm like, don't, Lord, just don't touch me. Like, don't, like they're freaking out when they see him because they, they, they know just right away I'm wholly different than this thing in front of me. 
And so hell exists because God is holy. A basic definition of sin is simply this, that sin misses the mark. It misses the mark. Sin, therefore, is anything that dishonors God. Okay, sin, basic definition, is anything that dishonors God. Anything. And so, whether you told a little white, a little light, I can't even say it, little white lie, tongue twister, whether it's like, like something small, doesn't even matter, or you literally murdered somebody, you have done something that God would never do and have therefore violated his character. No matter how, how big on the scale that bad thing was that you would rate it or society would rate it, you have done something that God himself would never do. So, therefore, you have separated yourself from God. But that's not, if you're a follower of Jesus or you're interested in the way of Jesus, that is not what we are invited into. In fact, First Peter, Jesus is, Peter, Jesus' leading disciple, he writes this way in chapter 3. He says, but as the one who called you is holy, which is God, calls you, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. In other words, we are called to be holy as God, our creator, is holy. That's the only way that you and I can enter into God's presence and live is to be holy. The problem, of course, is none of us are holy as God is holy. None of us are holy. The scriptures say as much. In Romans chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes this, For all have sinned. For all have sinned. Not just the person who votes differently than you or has a different belief system about something than you do. or like, All people have sinned. That includes you. That includes me. And fall short of the glory of God. All of us are here. Uh, maybe you could think of it another way. Um, regardless of whether or not you believe in God, regardless if you're maybe just checking things out, you're, you're curious, trying to share, regardless, all of us would admit that we have done things, that you have done things, even that by your own standard of morality, you would say are wrong. All of us, you have done things that even you would say are wrong. Therefore, none of us can certainly stand into the perfect presence of God. None of us can. Therefore, hell exists because God is holy. In fact, I would even submit this to you. Um, you would not want to follow a non-holy God. So I know this idea of hell is uncomfortable, and we're going to keep talking about it here in the next couple minutes. But I just want to say this. I don't think anybody would actually want to follow a non-holy God. In fact, um, we all have stories and experiences of injustices in our lives, right? Something that happened to us that was not fair or to a family member or a friend or a coworker that, that was not fair, right? Something did, somebody did something to you and they got away with it. Uh, someone received an award or promotion that actually you deserved. Uh, somebody took credit for something you did, right? There's plenty of stories in the news. I mean, every single day, every single week of rich and powerful people getting away with things that normal people like you and me could never get away with right? All the time, right? Nobody wants to follow a God like that. In fact, this may be a personal example, but it's just a real one. Uh, years ago, for a job I had a couple of years ago, uh, there's a group chat that many of the guys that we work together, uh, we still uh, keep in contact. And so we have this group chat. We play fantasy football. I didn't come last place in that one, thankfully, uh, like I did uh, New Cities. Um, but we keep up together and we have this group chat. And typically we just talk about sports or if like something big happens in the world. And so we're always talking, you know, almost every day people are posting in there. And what's interesting is that over the years that we've had this group chat together, over the years, every once in a while, there are stories that come out where some terrible person, maybe a mass shooter or something like that, does something terrible, and they kill all these people. And then they either take their own life after doing so, or they die in some sort of like police shootout. And every time that that has happened, somebody has always, 
always, always, always posted in our group, they will always say something to the fact of how unfair it was that this person died instead of facing any sort of justice. Right? They're like, that's not fair. Now, I, this is just, like they would say, of the group of us that are in this chat, I'm the only one that would profess to be a follower of Jesus. Right? And so for them, they're upset that this person died so quickly because this life is all there is, and they essentially got away with it. To them, it is not fair. To which I would say, yeah, you kind of agree with me, right? You would not want to follow a God who didn't do something with things like that. And so, again, hell exists because God is holy. Hell also exists because God is fair. It's fair, right? He created everything, which means then God sets the standard. And so for him to ignore only some people's sins or to ignore your sins or not someone else's or to ignore someone else's but not yours would be intrinsically unfair and unholy. Or maybe put another way, nobody wants to follow a God who is corrupt. You would not want to follow a God who is corrupt or can be bribed. Like just the rich and famous and powerful people, they can get away with it. Now, of course, the good news is God is not corrupt and he cannot be bribed. And, and while few people can afford to even bribe someone like maybe in our legal system, uh, everyone, everyone else can't, can't, according to God, he judges everyone by the same standard. Everyone is judged by the same standard. God judges sin because he's a God of love. Because he's loving and fair and just, that is why sin is judged. And if he did not do so, then he would actually not be loving. He would not actually be loving. You would not want to follow, I would, I would submit to you, a non-holy God. Now, that being said, we do a hard transition here. Uh, the question then becomes, what is hell like? So if hell exists, even though it wasn't originally created for people, what is hell actually like? Now, again, I want to answer the question according to what the Bible and what Jesus says not our feelings, okay? What does Jesus actually say? Some of those 33 mentions that he has. I'll go through some of these quickly. They'll be on the screen. Uh, Jesus says this, that hell is a, a place of eternal fire. He says that it is a blazing furnace. He describes it as a place of eternal punishment. He says it is like an abyss or a bottomless pit. He says it's a place where worms and moth eat away. He describes it as a place of darkness. He says that it is a place of tor torment that does not end. He says that it is a place of weeping. He says that it is a place of gnashing of teeth, which is a metaphor for anger. He says all of these things. Now, those are some quick tidbits. What's interesting is the actual, the most frequent analogy that Jesus uses for hell is Gehenna. His most frequent analogy is Gehenna, which was, this is a Cliff Notes, long story short version. Gehenna was a reference to the Hinnom Valley, which is around the west-southwest part of Jerusalem. So right outside Jerusalem, this, the southwest, west-southwest area, it was a valley. Now, it was here, many centuries before Jesus, uh, where a couple of e uh, evil, non-God-honoring uh, God Israelite kings practiced living human sacrifice and had things like sexual violence and perversion and cult prostitution. In other words, a couple of Israelite kings were having the Israelites behave just like the other nations that God drove out of the promised land because of their wickedness. So now these kings, Israel was behaving the same way, and they, they kind of set up this area as like one of the main temple areas to do so. In fact, uh, it was full of false idols. This was a place where you would leave a child like a baby if you didn't want it. Like you would let it die of the elements. You, if you lived in the area, you would, also, you would often dump your baby off there. Like it was a despicable place to the Lord. 
And so uh, what happened is after a while, there was a righteous king who rose up. His name was Josiah. He comes to power as the king of Judah. And he turns this basically this, this evil pagan temple sacrificing place into a massive garbage dump to desecrate it so that no one would ever use it as a place of worship again. That even in the future, no one could ever use this place as a place of false worship because of what it became. And so uh, in his day, they turn it into a place where the bodies of slain animals were dumped, uh, where, where uh, the, the bodies of dead criminals would be left, uh, where trash was put. It was basically a mod- or not modern, but it was like an ancient dump site. And it smelled terrible. It smelled terrible, and in this valley, there were often fires that were being kept up. They were burning 24-7 in different areas to burn up the trash and the dead carcasses. So it was a terrible place. It smelled terrible. It literally looked like death. It was a literal place of fire, awful, awful smell of death. Jesus, when he talks about Gehenna, he says, this is what hell is like. It's like that place. Now, that being said, we also know this, that a lot of these descriptions that Jesus and the scripture writers talk about hell are metaphors. So, so many of them are actually metaphors. For example, hell is described as a place of darkness, but it is also described as a place of fire. And so there's like, well, how does that happen if there's darkness and fire? Like there, there's stuff like this that like literally would be confusing on how you fuse all of these things together. So we know that some of these references are certainly metaphors to which you know, some of us might be like, well, sweet, because some of that stuff sounds really terrible. So I'll go with the metaphor. But actually, can I tell you, that's, that's actually not good news because metaphors often and particularly in the Bible are always used to point to something bigger and greater. Like when you can't fully explain what you saw, you try to use a metaphor to explain it, but that doesn't even encompass fully the experience that you had of something. And all this to say, hell is not a place. It's not a place that you or I want to be. The Apostle Paul writes this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord in his glorious power. Ultimately, as bad as maybe some of these things sound, ultimately, here's what hell is. At its worst, here's what hell is. Hell is eternal separation from God. Hell, this is what makes it bad. It's not just the things that sound suffering. What, what makes hell terrible is that you are eternally separated from God. Now, it's important to rightly understand what this means. Uh, what happens for many of us is that we get this idea when we think about hell, right? That there's all these people standing outside of heaven, heaven and they're just like suffering and they're, and they're begging to get let in and they're, they're wishing that they could be in heaven or they, they wish they could participate in the kingdom of God. And gold, God is outside the heaven gates like Hulk smash and like with a Thor hammer and like I've been watching all the Marvel movies with my kids and so just go with me, right? Iron Man, like he's like, God, he's like, bam, bam. He's like kicking him out of there. Right? That, that's kind of what we think. Like that's not fair, right? However, this is not the picture you get in scripture of what's going on. Not at all. Remember, we've already read that God actually does not want anyone to be there. He actually doesn't want anyone to be there. And so if heaven slash the kingdom of God is eternity with God, then we must ask ourselves: if someone has spent their entire life avoiding God or not, and not following him, or at least thinking they don't need him, why would they then all of a sudden want to spend eternity with him? We have to ask this question. In reality, for someone like that, it does reject a God who has decided they're good enough on their own that they do not need him. That for someone like that, heaven could actually be in God's presence, a sort of forced hell on somebody where they are stuck being where they said they never wanted to be. 
Now, um, a lot more, a lot more can be said about this, but just for time, I want to give you two quick uh, scripture, references of scripture that actually point to this actually being the reality of people actually not wanting to go to heaven. Uh, two places. One is in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, most explicitly in Revelation chapter 16. You can read about it later if you like. But in Revelation chapter 16, you read about people cursing and blaspheming against God for his judgment. But what you don't see is that people repenting and asking to be forgiven. So you have these group of people, this is after Jesus has returned, he's establishing his new heavens and the new earth. You have all these people who have, who have blasphemed and rejected God and they're cursing God and they're angry with him, but nobody repents. Right? Nobody asks for forgiveness. Another example is in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is actually Jesus' longest recording, continuous teaching on hell. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's a story of a parable of a rich man who is not named, and he was a, he's an awful, terrible guy, this rich man, and then this poor man named Lazarus. Now, this is not the same Lazarus that Jesus rose from the dead. This is a different, or that Jesus raised from the dead. This is a different Lazarus. So this story, this, this rich man, awful guy, and this poor man named Lazarus. Now, I'm not going to read the story, but basically here's what happens. Um, they both die, and the rich man begins suffering in hell. They both die. This rich man finds himself in hell. Now, in that story, if you read it in Luke 16, the rich man asks and begs that Lazarus would bring him a cup of water. Right? So, so the rich man seems to think that there is some sort of like a chasm that you can travel from heaven to hell, that you can do this. Now, the story actually is saying that, isn't saying that's true. And if you keep reading about it, it actually kind of says the opposite. But in the story, this, this, this rich man is like saying, Lazarus, come give me a drop of water because he is miserable. And so he asked him to bring water from heaven. But you know what he does not ask to do? He does not ask to go from hell to heaven. He doesn't ask. Now, the question is why the story does not say but apparently, I don't, I don't know it's wrong to maybe, to, to maybe pull this, this inference from that story, but apparently, even in his suffering, for whatever reason, this rich man still doesn't want to be with God. He doesn't ask for that. He just asks for his suffering to be relieved. He does not ask to be in the kingdom of God. Let me give you maybe a more practical reality, an analogy. Um, Disney World. So people, <laughs> you're like, what's going on? <laughs> People say that Disney is the happiest place on earth, right? That's their slogan. That's all people say. I tell you, get there, you get to the parking lot at the end of the day, and then you realize how much money you spent, and then you might think otherwise, right? But, but so many people love it. I've got some friends that like go every single year. They love Disney. Now, funny story, in 2021, my wife, Christine, and I were celebrating our 10-year anniversary, and we went to Disney. And of course, we didn't bring the kids. And... Um, <laughs> And so it was fun. Um, it was kind of like the COVID stuff. So you had to wear a mask and stuff if you were taking a picture. So that, and some of the magical stuff wasn't there because they like took a bunch of stuff away. But we had a really great time. And uh, we went in like April or May. So it was right before summer. And I remember one day the, the, the hotel we were staying at, they took buses to Disney for free. And we're in line with this couple. They had like three or four kids in a stroller. We're talking and the bus comes up. And as we're getting the bus, the, the woman looks at us and say, enjoy your, she says to us, enjoy your time before, without kids. And I immediately respond to her. I was like, oh, we have kids. We just didn't bring them. I mean, what do you think, what do you, think you are? And so, uh, but we go, right? And I remember thinking, like, it was about 80 degrees. Like, it was hot. I started sweating. I'm like, people come here with kids in the summer? No. Like, sweating, screaming, crying, miserable. Like, no. I, would, no, I have no idea to ever take my kids to travel to Disney for multiple days. No, I, no, 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 uh, no desire to do that, right? But for some, for some, Disney is a, pay, a place of paradise. 
And so they spend all year working and saving and budgeting and dreaming about their trip next year to Disney. The place, however, that is paradise for them is a, like a mini hell for others who would say, I have no desire to ever go to Disney. And some of you are like, they don't never take me there, right? So for some, it's paradise. For others, it's like a mini hell. They've never wanted to go there. Now, if I could tell you, uh, this is the dynamic that the scriptures are describing. When you have people who have spent their whole lives trying to be separate from God, or at the very least having no need for God, this is what happens to them. They have no desire to go there. In fact, C.S. Lewis, the question that becomes, well, it seems unfair. Why would God send people to hell? It's not fair. The author C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? So if you want people to go to hell, what do you want them to do? He says, to wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering a, every miracul a very miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary. So what you want him to do, he's actually done in Jesus. And then he says, to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Like if I could tell you, the reason that hell again is so bad is not simply the suffering or the fire or whatever it's going to look like. But ultimately what makes hell so bad is separation from God. That according to the scriptures, God is the source of all love and all joy and all peace and all fulfillment and all contentment. That is God that in this life, whether you know God or not, all of us experience what is called common grace and the goodness of God in our life. Whether you follow him or not, in this life, you still experience what is called common grace. In fact, the author Max Lucado put it this way. He says, Adolf Hitler witnessed the wander of the Alps. Saddam Hussein enjoyed the blushing sunrise of the desert. The dictator, child molester, serial rapist, and drug peddler all enjoy the common grace of God's goodness. They hear children laugh, smell dinner cooking, and tap their toes to the rhythm of a good song. But hear me, in hell... And hell, all of these things, the, these experiences of God's grace that everyone on earth can participate in, they are gone forever. They're gone forever. And I think what makes it harder is that sometimes we use the description, right, that my life feels like hell. That, that, that person is going through hell right now. They're going through something tragic. So we, we use the kind of disclaimer to describe what is happening. And hear me, as bad as it might be, and as bad as your life might actually be right now, can I just tell you, it's not even close to what hell is actually like. Scripturally speaking, it's actually not even close. As dark as things might seem for you or the friend or the family member right now, the reality is that there's still hope. There is still hope. If you're still breathing, there is still hope for you. But in hell, there is no hope to experience any of these things. It's gone. And so if I could maybe transition again, kind of close talking about this question, then how if it's going to be so miserable outside of God's grace, and we're going to know that we're separated from God, then how could a God who is loving send people to hell? Why would he do that. Now, we've already answered that question a little bit, but I just want to press in here. Um, first thing I want to say, uh, I think it's helpful for us to know that the only people actually 
in the history of the world, in human history, of all recorded human history, who have actually objected to the concept of hell are primarily modern white people living in the West. So Western Europe and North America. That, that's in the last 200 years since the Enlightenment, 200 years, that is, that are the, in the human history, the only people that really have a problem with this idea of hell. Now the question might be, well, why? Why this shift in our, in our thoughts about hell? Well, the, one of the big reasons is because in our culture today, everything is always someone else's fault. And we are just perfect the way that we are. Now, I'm not saying that trauma and child, these things absolutely affect you for, 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 for good and for bad. Absolutely. But in our culture today, that every, even, if, even if you do something wrong, right, it's not your fault, right? It's my parents' fault, or it's the government's fault, or it's the system's fault, but it's certainly not my fault, like certainly not on me. But if we're going to read the scriptures with integrity, we have to know the scriptures say, no. The scriptures say, as we read that, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That you and I are unholy enemies of God who need grace and rescue. That is who we, what we need according to Jesus and the scriptures. And what's also interesting is in my years of being a pastor and in ministry, I have heard, I've had this question asked, and I've seen this question asked countless times, right? How could a just God, how could a loving God send people to hell, right, all the time? Do you want to know a, the, the parallel question that I would submit to you is even a harder answer? It's actually the opposite. And by the way, I've never had anyone ever ask me this question, right? How could a just God send people to heaven? Nobody ever asked that. On a purely intellectual level, that is every bit, if not even a bigger problem than the question that we are looking at right now. How could God, how perfect and holy separate God allow any of us to be into his presence? So again, how could a loving God send people to hell? Here's the answer. Are you ready for this? He doesn't. He doesn't. Now, don't get me wrong. This does not mean people do not go there. But what it does mean is that he is not the one sending you there. In fact, if I could maybe sum it up this way, here's what I'd say. Our choice to separate ourselves from God is what sends us to hell, not God wanting us to be there. Our choice to separate ourselves from God is what sends us to hell. It is not God wanting us to be there, as we've already seen that. That is the furthest thing from the truth. Now, some people will say, well, I could never believe in the God of the Bible because he sends people to hell. He sends people to hell, right? Again, here is my response to that. You and I must not be reading the same Bible. Because according to the Bible that I'm reading, here's what I see my God do. My God, according to the scriptures, does everything in his power to keep people from going to hell. Right? My God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world to die on a cross so that no one would have to go there. In fact, the scriptures say that God is willing that none should perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. My God, in fact, says this, that he loves you so much that if you want to go to hell, you have to step over my dead, literal body to get there. That is how much Jesus loves you. That's how much he loves you. Regardless, hear me, regardless of the amount of shame or the size of the regret in your life, the decisions that you have made, or maybe even the things done to you, the good news of the gospel is that God saves and redeems that which was lost. That's what God does. So we're going to see Jesus is one day going to return. He's certainly currently sitting right hand of the, at the right hand of the Father. One day he's going to return. He's going to make every wrong thing right to establish his perfect kingdom. 
and all suffering will end. That is what we are currently waiting for. And so you might be saying, that sounds great. If that's what, if that's what things are going, why not happen today? Like, why doesn't Jesus just do that today? Let's get rid of all this misery. Let's, let's go home to the Lord. Well, here's why I think one reason God is still waiting. Second Peter 3, it says this. Dear friends, don't overlook this fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Then it says this, verse 9, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Can I just say, man, if you're here, if you're watching online, and you're not quite sure about the Jesus thing, you want to know what Jesus is waiting for? He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you, man. Man, he's waiting for you to experience the grace and mercy that he has. He's waiting for you to know that you, right in the midst of your sin and your shame, do not have to stay there. That Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel chapter 18. He says, do I take any pleasure? He's talking about God here. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his evil, from his ways and lives? You can put the Ezekiel verse on the screen. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? That's what he says. And so can I just say this? I want to say, as I end, I I know I've said it in maybe a couple of times. I'm being a preacher today. Just forgive me, okay? Say that in a few more minutes. Um, for Christians. So I want to end talking about Christians, and then if you're still trying to figure out the Jesus thing. For Christians. Can I just say, what is your, our response to this is who do we need to go and tell? Who do we need to share with? Who do we need to pray for? Who do we need to invite? Who do we need to be intentional in our lives so that instead of spending eternity separated from the God who gave his life for them, that you and I might participate in his rescue mission in their life? Who is it that God has you around? For you to love, to pray for, and to serve so that they might experience the goodness of God that he has given to you. That's the question. And man, if you're not a Christian, you're still trying to figure this thing out. The last thing I want to read, here is the invitation for you. Here's what you should do. Acts chapter 2, the church is inaugurated. Jesus has ascended back into heaven. Peter is preaching. Thousands of people are hearing the gospel message for the first time. And here is their question, okay? It says this, Acts 2. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the, forgiveness, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The invitation to the, someone who's interested, who is seeking, is to repent, to turn from your way, to trust in the Lord, and to be baptized. The invitation is not some other, not someday in the future, not when you promise to do better, not when you act better, better, behave better, when you figure everything out and you never have any more doubts in the rest of your life, but today that you turn and accept the freedom that God offers. And the good news, hey, we've already got this planned for you. Baptism. Guess what we're doing next Sunday? We're baptizing. And listen, you're not going to be the only one. We already have five people. The number might go up. We already have people. We're going to do it in the service. It's going to be incredible. You should be here. If, you're not, if you've got other plans, you should come back. It's going to be awesome. But Jesus says, now when you, today that you experience the grace and the mercy of God, you turn from your ways and you are baptized. Now, baptism does not save you, but it is a public declaration of what Christ has done, that he has saved you from your sins. So if you're interested in baptism, again, you can text NCC Baptism to 97000 or check baptism after the connect card or talk to me after the service. Love to share more information about what that looks like. But for you, and if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, your invitation is to 